I'm Michael Smith. And I'm Chuck Osborne. And welcome to the Iron Capital Podcast. Where we break down investment stuff with anecdotes and stories that non-financial geeks can understand. Hey, this is Michael. And this is Chuck. It's Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. This is the fourth episode of the Iron Capital Podcast. So let's get to it, Chuck. What's on your mind? Uh, public service announcement, uh, Michael. Public service announcement. Um, it is 11.30. Do you know where your money is? <laughs> All right. Um, just in the last week, this is nuts. i got to go to the glasses here. Sorry. Um, in the last week, um, LPL... A uh, broker-dealer out of Boston was rung up for $3.1 million. Um, the, one of their uh, brokers had stolen $2.4 million in client funds. Um, the next day, SEC charges veteran F.A. for stealing $2.4 million from um, elderly clients. Uh, this was a different firm in a different location. Um, uh, this was a dual registered advisor mm-hmm. uh, with 26 years industry experience and stole 2.4 million from an 87 year old. And uh, just this morning, as we were planning on doing this, yet another one. Oh my goodness! 35 million uh, stolen in a Ponzi-like scheme in Florida uh, by a church member who had uh, convinced his fellow church members to give him money. 60 people. Uh, gave a total of $35 million to this gentleman who primarily used that money to live on. <laughs> and uh, that, is, uh, um, that is kind of crazy. So we think about um, the, the worst parts of our industry and, and how uh, people actually uh, have their money stolen from them. And so much of that goes into um, how we're structured and why we're structured the way we are and getting people to understand the importance of that. I think it oftentimes um, gets lost. Uh, so no, that's I think what's on my mind. That, well, let's, let's, we're going to get into it then. Yeah. So, well, like I usually like to do, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the larger investment frauds and Ponzi schemes and, um, you know, uh, what some of those have in common. And we'll start off with ways, um, some of the easy ways um, to stop that from ever occurring. Right. And then we'll, we'll go down from there. But um, I guess, my, what is a Ponzi scheme, Chuck? People throw that word out all the time. And when, when that is, is talked about, what do you think of as a Ponzi scheme? Right. So uh, the Ponzi scheme um, goes back to, um, if I recall correctly, there was a guy whose actual name was Ponzi. Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi. Yeah. Um, and you, basically what happens is you, uh, you promise um, investors a great return in this mysterious, hard to understand. Um, it's always complicated, Michael. Yeah. It's always complicated. It's all, yeah. You wouldn't understand. Um, just trust you're me. Right. You just trust me. Trust um, me. You're going to get... You know, uh, you know, a big return. Uh, so the, the gentleman in South Florida was promising anywhere from 18 to 43 percent return. Probably guaranteed. Um, guaranteed. He did. He <laughs> did use that word guaranteed, Probably according guaranteed. to the article. Yes. Yeah. Um, and 
what happens is uh, you get the money from the client and you don't invest it at all. You're just stealing their money. Uh, but what you will do uh, is you will actually uh, pay back part of their money to them or as you get new clients, you actually give that money to the old investors. So the investors believe that they're making a return, that they're making a return because they're getting these dividends. And, um, and then they will, you know, tell all their friends that, you know, this guy's got the secret, you know, you don't have to, uh, my investment doesn't ever change. It never changes. goes down, but mine doesn't. Look at this piece of paper I have that says nothing changed. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I have a piece of paper that says nothing changed. And, um, when I've asked for money, they give it, they give it to me, which is the biggest. So that convinces them that everything is legitimate and, um, and theoretically that can just keep going. But what, uh, you know, ultimately happens is it implodes. Um, there's not the money, you know, the money's not there to give to clients as they need it and start, people start raising red flags and, you know, they find out that it's all a big scam. And, you know, it's, I don't know the details of these, but these often come out after, um, a significant market downturn. Mm-hmm. It's very normal. So the two yeah. largest that ever occurred, um, which um, Bernie Madoff, right. which came out in 2008, that was yeah. that was a I think a 20 billion dollar scam. Alan Stanford yeah. came out in 12 or 13. It was not uh, far behind the um, the downgrade of the U.S. Yeah. debt and the European debt crisis. That was seven billion. Right. Both of those were guarantees right. um, of, of of some wild return that you couldn't actually get in a safe way. But I think it's important to note what almost all of the big Ponzi schemes, what almost all of these ones we're talking about involve are this idea of custody. So let's talk about um, what custody means. Um, And I I think it's easy to start off and say, if you, if you, what happened with Charles Ponzi? He had people give him cash, right? Right. They didn't put it in a bank. They didn't put it in someone else to hold money from. They gave him money directly and that's a form of custody right but talk about how custody works in 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 current yeah. day yeah. and i'm going to you know i'm often accused of splitting hairs but i'm going to correct your grammar okay um it's not almost <laughs> it's all it, it's all there there is no way to steal a client's money if you don't have custody yeah that's true uh, of the assets good point so um custody is is king and it's basically when you have an advisor anytime you have an advisor says um, you know give your money to me um, and or to my firm and uh, so this is where you get again the the distinction in the the industry that we've talked about before in in previous podcasts we talk about all the time with our clients is uh, the old buy side and the sell side so um, we are an investment advisor. That is our job. We are not a financial institution. We give advice for a fee. That's what we do. We represent our clients as a fiduciary. We sit on the same side of the table as they do. And then we manage their investments on their behalf. Um, we, and everyone like us, um, has to um, have those portfolios at actual financial institutions, just like the client would if they were doing it directly themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the financial institutions in question when most of the time when you're talking about investments are broker dealers. 
Um, these are uh, registered with the SEC as a broker-dealer. Uh, they deal in securities and they broker securities and they custody client assets um, in an account where you buy and sell securities. Um, and you know the, the ones that we think about today are you know Charles Schwab, um, you we got TD Ameritrade, but they're about to be the same fidelity. Um, you, you got uh, Merrill Lynch, mm-hmm. you've got Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. um, these um, JP Morgan, um, you know, and so some of them are also banks, but you know, they have broker dealers where they actually custody the assets and, um, and the securities. And so, uh, you know, um, securities, and we still occasionally will get this. You'll have a client call us and they've got, you know, my dad or my granddad um, had these actual stock certificates in a safe somewhere. What do I do with them? Um, Most people don't keep stock that way anymore. Most people keep it at a registered broker-dealer in an account under their name. And the... uh, um, so it's the broker-dealer that has custody of the assets. And this is why it is so important that you separate the actual action of advice from that custody. All right. So in each one of these cases, um, you had a situation where the people were acting as an advisor and as the broker-dealer or uh, as the custodian of the assets. And because they were on both sides of the table, they're able to steal they the money. They were able to steal the money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is a great point to talk about, you know, the idea of a dual registered firm um, and the history of that, I think. Right. So, you know, historically, prior to 07, you had um, re- registered investment advisors, which is what Iron Capital is, and others like us, and then you had um, you had brokers and registered representatives who acted on behalf of the brokers. Right, right. right. Why don't you talk a little bit about how about that and how that changed a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, so there's a little vocabulary, a little you know the industry vocabulary you have to um, get used to here. So, um, the broker dealer is the firm itself. So, uh, Morgan Stanley is a broker dealer. Um, your advisor at broker dealer is technically a registered representative of Morgan Stanley. All right, so the advisors, brokers, whatever you want to call them, they are registered representatives of the broker-dealer. Um, and the as we often speak about um, and, and have already in, in an earlier podcast, we when I first got into this business 30-plus uh, years ago, uh, there was a, uh, there was just a separated line. You, you were either a broker, a broker, you know, a, a registered representative, a broker dealer, and you were on the sell side of the business. And you made it clear to your clients that we are selling securities. Yep. I am here to sell you whatever it was. You know, whether it's an individual stock, a bond, a fund, whatever. I'm, you know, you. The relationship was very clear that these were salespeople representing a financial institution and products that that financial institution was selling. Uh, Or you were an advisor. And most of those advisors are often referred to as money managers, where people were hired 
primarily by institutional investors or very high net worth investors uh, back in those days because um, you just, to make that worthwhile, you had to have a lot of assets. But uh, they would uh, hire a money manager who would represent them, again, as a fiduciary, and, um, and make investment decisions on their behalf. And so um, the industry was completely separate and it was very clear. So what happened sometime in the mid-90s or so, I believe it was Merrill Lynch, um, started to um, uh, charge fees for doing things like financial planning. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to their traditional business of we sell a product, and when we sell a product, we get a commission. We make a commission. The we way make they made money right. was making a percent of the yeah. sale of the product. Yeah, because they were salespeople. They were salespeople. And, and so we're very accustomed to salespeople make commissions. Yep. So, um, you know, I sold you a stock, I get a commission. I sell you a mutual fund, I, I get, get a commission. commission. Yep. Right. And so that's, you know... That was their traditional way of making money. Um, they wanted to expand their business beyond that, and so they decided that they were going to get into financial planning, and uh, they wanted to charge a fee uh, for the financial plan. So not only are they making money on the commissions of products that they sell, but now they're also going to charge a fee for creating a plan, um, which, shockingly, is going to recommend that you buy a lot more products. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that's, um, uh, that was the, the beginning of it. And then so uh, there is a, a national organization called the Financial Planning Association uh, didn't like that. They didn't like the idea that these brokers are now pre presenting themselves as financial planners. Uh, they sued them and basically uh, said that, you know, if they're going to do this, they actually have to register with the SEC as an investment advisor uh, so that they can give fee-based advice. advice. And take a fiduciary responsibility. And, right. And so take fiduciary prior to this, you know, if you're, a, if you're a, still, if you're a registered representative, you don't have a fiduciary liability to your client. You don't no. have to look, work in their best interest. You're working in the interest of your firm. Right. It has to be suitable, but you're working in the interest of your firm, and you're looking out for your firm's best interests. Absolutely. I mean, you're a salesman, just like any salesperson. Just like any salesperson. You know, if you go buy a Toyota, and you go to the Toyota dealer, the, the person you're talking to is working for Toyota. Yep. That doesn't mean they're a bad person. Doesn't mean they're going to sell you a lemon or you know or anything else. It just that is the role that they are in. They are not in the role of a fiduciary, who is a person you pay to act on your behalf in a certain you know manner. Um, in this case, doing investment, making investment decisions. Um, that's not their role. Their role is to sell products. Um, and it goes back to, uh, you know, something that, um, you know, our clients used to tell us. We have clients of a certain age, now they're getting older and older, those that are still alive, that we would ask them the question when they came, is like, who manages your money? And they would say, I do. Yeah. And Bob at Merrill Lynch has been my, broker, my broker for forever. Yeah. And, um, and that's the correct description of that relationship when i want to buy a stock, stock right i'll tell I, bob i want right, to he right. may tell me some of his opinions on some things oh sure but i'm the decision because he's a maker. good salesperson mm -hmm. but it, but his input is that of a salesperson yep. it's just like when you go 
to buy a suit from a person that maybe you've bought several suits from. He, you know, they kind of know what you like. They know what you own. They, you know, and um, and so they're going to give you a recommendation. But at the end of the day, they're still selling something yeah. to you. They're not, you know, um, a, a objective advisor. So and, after this suit, right? Right. Uh, after this, post two thousand and seven. So in We yeah. now have the creation of what are called. Um, Duly registered representatives, right? Right, you do. And then again, this gets into the problem which we talk about all the time, is that you have salespeople who are still salespeople, but they're calling themselves advisors. And in this case, they're actually been able to be um, licensed, so to speak, to do both of those things yep. at once. And it causes an enormous okay. amount of problems. Conflicts of interest it, left and right. It, well, it's, you just think about that. If, if, um, if we were dual registered, which we are absolutely not, uh, but if, if we were in that situation, um, then we could create a product that we're selling that we make a lot of money on. Um, and because we have control of our clients' assets, we could just put them in the product, and now we're double dipping. We're getting we're, paid twice. We're getting paid twice. The management we're, fee from the right. product plus our fee on top of the whole thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is why you don't do that. Um, and that's, frankly, the best case scenario. The best case scenario is you're dealing with someone who just has an enormous conflict of interest, and you're getting something that's probably not really in your best interest. Um, it is probably more expensive than you need to pay. It's probably not going to get you the returns that you could get elsewhere, et cetera, and so forth. That's the best case scenario. Yeah. The worst case scenario is what we're talking about the, the, here, right? The, the worst case scenario is they're able to walk off with your money. It's a situation where fraud is much easier to commit. Um, I mean, at, at multi, you know, it's, well, let, well, let's talk about some of the data, right? Right, right. Yeah, so I'm, um, we're not the only people who have noticed this. So that it is very important. I think a lot of people have probably not heard it mm -hmm. uh, because you don't hear this much. But this was a paper written in uh, 2019 by uh, Nicole uh, Boyson. Hopefully I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She was um, an associate uh, professor at Northeastern University. Uh, did a little did a little research. Uh, first, interesting little uh, tidbit. Well, first let's say the name of the research paper, which I oh, love. Oh, really? It's oh, yeah. The worst of both worlds: dual registered investment advisors. <laughs> she does put a question mark there. That's true. But uh, but I think at the end she that's answered in the she uh, answers that this in is the, the affirmative. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so he, right off the bat, a um, couple things that that jump out. 81% of the assets in registered investment advisor type firms are with uh, people who are dual registered, which is uh, frightening, yep. quite frankly. Uh, the um, <laughs> Interesting, this was written in 2019. Uh, the SEC, as she said, had, had identified this as one of their top priorities um, in 2013 and 2014. There's just an article out earlier this year, it is also the top priority in 2023. This is not going away. Yeah. The main regulatory body that, that regulates um, these people, just the fact of being dual registered is one of their top risk alerts. Right. Absolutely. Set, set up one. 
Setup one. Um, and as th is the case with most academic papers, she quotes in a lot of other papers. Uh, so you've got um, a gentleman named uh, Demick, uh, and, or two gentlemen, I guess, uh, or individuals, I should say. I don't know that they were gentlemen. Uh, Demick and Gherkin in 2012 um, did a study um, and found that simply being a dual registered RIA is a strong predictor of subsequent fraud. Um, that's a pretty strong sentence. Just being dual registered yeah. compared to independent RAs. Yeah. Abs absolutely. Um, they, um, in a later um, study, found that uh, being dual registered uh, led to a 50% more likely to commit misconduct than standalone brokers who also were more likely to So actually, brokers themselves were more likely than RAs, than independent right. RAs, but, but dual registered, again, kind of the worst of both worlds situation, were worse than even the brokers. Yes, were. In, in terms of actually um, committing um, misconduct. And I think it's important to make a point here. Um, and you've heard me say this several times, but incompetence is far more prevalent than malfeasance. Um, most people in our industry, including all the dual registered individuals, uh, are not bad people. Yeah, these are not bad people. These are people we um, know. These are people. These, these are family right. members. Sometimes these are people trying to do a they're, job. They're people that you meet at church. Yeah, people I mean, that they're, yeah. right. They're uh, they're not bad people. And the vast majority of them yeah, are are normal um, good people. Yeah, even the people that um, end up committing the most horrible frauds don't start out being bad people. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Madoff did not start out as a fraud. He started out actually trying to manage money. And he had some early success. And then he started making promises that he couldn't keep. Yeah. And when he couldn't keep them, he tried to, he tried to hide them from his clients. Mm -hmm. um, it started with a little lies. And just step by step by step, it ends up becoming the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history um, of, um, of financial markets. By the way, because he had custody, he could do those things. Right. He could go in and doctor statements and say a different value. There was well, a third party, right? Well, I don't know if he doctored them. He created them. I mean, he just... He, you just typed whatever they he wanted. He just typed in whatever yeah. he wanted and printed it off. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that is... Um, um, th that is really, you know, it, it is what it is. You, you have a situation where you've given somebody custody of their assets and you've created the ability to do this and you've got to understand, like in the case of Madoff, it's an enormous temptation. Yeah, it's a temptation. It's a, um, and, um, and ultimately what happens is these conflicts of interest, uh, they have a much bigger impact on people's behavior than people think. Everyone thinks... And there's been tons of studies to back this up. Everyone was, you know, they'll sit there and go, I'm a good person. Um, and most people are. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm going to do what's in the best interest, even if it isn't in my best interest. And then they test it time and time again. Um, the conflict of interest wins out, yeah. you know. And uh, when you uh, are in a situation, which happens a lot of these, and, and part of the reason why they come to light in, during bad financial times is because 
um, the first people to feel the pain in bad financial times are people like us. You know, they're the investment advisors because as the market goes down, our revenues go down and we get hit first. Um, now, if you're prudent, you've, you, you plan for those kind of things and you don't, and you make sure that you can survive those situations. Um, but um, what often happens to these is that they haven't. And so they, then what do they do? They, they cut a corner. And if you're structured um, improperly, you right, can. Right. Again, if you're if you're and in then, these situations and your 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 kid has to go to college and you have to pay for that and right. you have the ability. Right. You because have of the how ability. You're structured, you the, could go take money and you can right. make the promise that right. you're just going to put it back. Right. And it's yeah, exactly. I'm just going to you know you're like dumb and dumber. You know that suitcase is full of IOUs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, every one of those is good. You know, and you know that's um, that's how that's how it works. Let's talk more so, about what uh, Nicole Boyson found in her actual report, because I think some of those things are really um, important. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I can go to some of these and you can talk to them. One of them is uh, the dual registers, they sell insurance products to their clients. As right. an RAA, for what we do, we can't sell them products. We can't, we can't make money from that. Why is selling an insurance product to a client a problem? Um, well, it's enormous conflict of interest. Yep. I mean, because um, people who sell insurance get paid a lot of money to, to sell insurance. Um, and when you're making a big commission to sell a product, um, that is an enormous conflict of interest. The other thing that happens, and this is just, this should be common sense, but in the financial world, um, it's, it's not. People, um, our education system does a horrible job kind of educating people on personal finance and, um, and what it means to invest versus insurance versus you know, all of these things. And people just think that, well, you're in the financial world, that means you're a finance guy. And that means that you know things. So someone who sells insurance could, should certainly be able to advise on investments. That's absurd. Completely different. It has nothing to do with different. each other. Right. And that and that's, isn't an insult towards insurance people. Insurance is very important. But it's just like saying that you don't go to your dentist uh, when you're having chest pains, <laughs> you know, you, um, that's not to say that dentists are bad people or that you shouldn't visit your dentist twice a year. Um, but they're not cardiologists. If you're having chest pains, you go to the ER and they put you in front of a cardiologist to figure out what's wrong with your heart. Yep. You, you don't go to a dentist. Yep. Um, you don't go to an insurance person to um, get investment advice. Yeah, or vice versa. Or vice, or vice versa, yeah, uh, yeah quite frankly. Um, and, you know, it should be, that should be pretty simple, but unfortunately it's not. Yep. And obviously the insurance person has, um, has the conflict of interest of, you know what, I could make money on advising you with investments. Yeah. And... Um, and frankly, you know, what happens in those cases is it's the home office that does everything. All the insurance guy actually does is sign you up on whatever their home office is, you know, selling at the time. And, um, and then they go on and try to find a new client because that's really what their job is, is to go out and find clients that they can sell insurance to. Um, and so, 
Um, so it's an enormous conflict of interest, and it's something that should be simple, but for some reason it isn't. Don't ever take investment advice from someone who is selling you insurance um, or, um, you know, for that matter, you know, your real estate agent, yeah. <laughs> your, yeah. uh, your doctor, <laughs> your lawyer, um, you know, these are not the people that you should be asking investment advice from. You yeah. should be asking investment advice from someone who's actually qualified as an investment advisor. Um, but it, 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 it's an enormous conflict of interest. Um, and again, it, it boils down to the idea, you know, um, that um, how much does your insurance agent actually know about investing? How much training do you think they're getting in terms of actually analyzing securities and making investment decisions? You know, uh, the, the answer to that question is, is zero. Yeah. Um, and what happens is so many times is that these are good people. They don't really know what they're doing. They trust the company that they work for. Um, and so when the company comes out and says, hey, we're going to dual register all you guys. And now you can also make money giving advice. And that's going to increase your income. Yep. And we're going to help our clients even more. Um, and, um, and you don't have to really do anything because we're going to do it all from the home office. All right. We've seen that not even with insurance guys. Uh, we had a specific, um, you know, client that you may recall that, uh, they had part of their assets with us and they had part of their assets with Morgan Stanley. And they asked us to have a meeting together and we were in the Morgan Stanley office here in Atlanta. And um, they wanted to, you know, have us both in the same place at the same time. And every question they asked the Morgan Stanley team, it, the answer was usually, well, we'll have to call to New Jersey in our home office and find out. Yeah. And every question they asked of us, we just answered because they have a direct relationship with the people who are actually making the investment decisions. And even at a firm as as high quality and Morgan Stanley is a high, very quality, high quality, very high quality firm. firm. Um, their representatives are paid to go out there and find new clients. They are not paid to uh, be actually doing the investment work. That happens in the home office. And the problem with that, and this is what motivated me to start Iron Capital in the beginning, because I, I was one of those people, is that when I was in Vesco, I never met a client. You know, the client was just a concept to me. Yeah. I mean, the, um, and so it's very easy when you never actually go face to face with a client to be always thinking in terms of what's good for the firm. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that we're doing something that's bad for the client, yeah. but you always have that conflict of are we going to do what's right for the clients or are we going to do what's right for our business? And, um, and when the people actually making those decisions are completely removed from the client, it becomes very easy to favor the business over the client. That is a perfect segue into the next thing that, uh, that the author talked about, which was um, 
you know, dual register firms often get paid uh, what we call revenue sharing arrangements, where the mutual funds or the products they're using um, actually pay the firm itself or the individuals. Talk right. about that and how that causes a problem. Right. Because um, she found this still happens even in these dual registered situations where that can't happen with a, an independent RIA. Right. It cannot happen with independent RIA. So if you come to someone like Iron Capital, who is truly independent, um, the only revenue we receive as a firm is the fees that our clients have agreed to pay us. That's it. That's the only source of revenue that we have. Um, so whatever um, advice we give in terms of um, you know making investments, um, you know hopefully we're right. But it's always our best judgment as to what's best for the clients, um, because ultimately one cannot serve two masters. You can't get paid uh, by the product um, and be objective. Now with a broker dealer, that's not the case. All right, these are stores. Okay, a broker dealer is a store where you go to buy securities, just like Macy's is a store where you go to buy clothes. And if there are clothes on the shelves at Macy's, it means Macy's has a business arrangement with, um, you know, whatever clothing brand that is. Ralph Lauren, you know, there. So, uh, you know, Ralph Lauren pays to be on the shelf at Macy's, and. Uh, American funds pays to be on the shelf at Morgan Stanley. That's right, um, and it's the same type of arrangement. So now that's hypothetically, we don't know that American funds pays for Morgan Stanley, do we? Well, if they're on the shelf yeah, yeah, at yeah. Morgan Stanley, so let's just say this is <laughs> they're, a hypothetical. They're, they're, they're we're paying, not safe for but sure. no, yeah, um, um, and I'm pretty sure they are. It's probably uh, right. there, there's um, there's a high probability that they are, but um, but no, that they pay this. As a matter of fact. You know, I talk about my own experience. Um, so I was in the retirement division at Invesco. We were acting as a custodian um, of, you know, retirement plan assets. That was part of my job. Part of my job was not just to analyze um, what were the best investments to offer, but part of my job was to negotiate the revenue that we would get, uh, that Invesco would get from the uh, whatever managers we agreed to have on our platform. If you were going to be on our platform, then you had to pay to be on that platform. Um, just like any wholesale operation has to pay to be on a retail um, platform. And so um, that's how that business has always worked. Um, but then again, that used to be the only way it worked. We weren't also playing the other side of being the objective advisor who's then putting you into this fund that is paying us a lot of money to be on the platform in the first yeah. place. And, and now when you have the dual registered situation, you have a situation where those funds are still, they're still doing the same thing. They're still paying to be on the platform. Um, and um, you now have, uh, you know, advisors who are charging a fee to the client to put them in a in a uh, product that is paying the firm. Okay. Now, again, this is where um, most of the time the advisors are simply um, naive as to how the business works, because one of the things that often does go away in that fee arrangement is the advisor's, advisor's piece. actual piece of the compensation. Yeah. 
And so... The firm uh, makes more money. The firm makes money. The advisor doesn't make more. The, the but bi- there's an approved list of funds. There's an approved list and of funds. that approved list of funds has a much higher revenue sharing with the firm than others. And therefore, right. and, and again, uh, you know, it's it means... So, we're not the only independent RA. There's other people that do what we do. We're simply, we're one person in this, one yeah. group in this thing. But, but someone like us has the entire world of, of products to choose from because it doesn't right. matter. But here's what's scary to me, and I didn't, and this is something I did not realize until last, um, in the last couple of days, preparing for this talk. And we've, uh, um, we've um, looked out there. There are currently... Th- uh, approximately 307,000 dual registered um, advisors out there. Uh, for the first time ever, they outnumber uh, the uh, the plain registered representative, the traditional brokers, brokers that we think of as financial advisors. Uh, there are 305,000 of them. There are 77,000 nationwide. Um, individuals, not uh, these are the individuals, not the firms. Seventy-seven thousand um, um, uh, truly independent um, registered representative, or excuse me, uh, uh, investment advisors out there currently. So you're talking about there are other people like us, but we are still, but it's still hugely in the minority. Um, you're, um, you know, over. Um, half a million, over 600,000 um, are still registered as broker with a broker-dealer. One way or the other. One way or the other. Yeah. And you're talking about 77,000 yeah. th- that are not. Yeah. And that really is, um, you, know, d- you know, to get to the, what can the client do, what can the prospective client do, that's the simple solution. All right. If you want to make sure that your money is safe, if you want to make sure that the advice you are getting is actually objective advice and unbiased. it's not and it's unbiased and it's not conflicted, if you want and and really what you want to um, make sure of is that you know you don't get your money stolen from you. I mean, let's let's not ignore the worst case scenario. Uh, don't ever. Um, Take advice from someone who is an actual registered representative of a broker-dealer. All right. If you're dealing with someone and their business card says securities offered through, all right, then you're dealing with a salesperson who works for a broker-dealer and who is going to have custody of your assets. Um, and you know, if that's your choice to work for them, that's fine. But you got to know what you're dealing with. You are not dealing with an advisor. You are dealing with a salesperson who is representing a broker-dealer and um, who you are basically now trusting with your assets um, and, um, and not just to give good advice, but to, to not run off with them. Yep. Um, and so that, so that, that is the, the, um, the ultimate solution and again um, we hadn't brought it up yet but one of the findings of this research paper which is extremely disturbing yeah 10% of the firms that uh, do dual registration 
Um, that the author looked at. That the author saw in her study. 10% um, higher convicts. Um, a convicted felon. Yeah, a convicted felon. You're talking, I mean... And zero in the in, in the group. So she looked at like kind of the 75 right. largest of, of both registered reps and the independent RIAs. Right. And of that, 10% of the registered rep, uh, of the dual registered uh, advisors had it were convicted felons. Mm-hmm. Zero of the independent RAAs were, were, were convicted, convicted felons. felons. Zero, Zero. Not one. Yeah, in um, her study. Right. And it keeps going down, right? I mean, right. What, um, 21% of the dual registrants were, had been um, caught lying to the SEC versus 1% for independent RAAs. 38% of the dual registers violated SEC statutes versus 1% of registered RAAs, of independent RAAs. 55% had an SEC order against them versus 2% for the independent RAAs. 14% had a court enjoin an action on them versus 0.3%. 14%. You think about that. <laughs> you think about that. You, I mean, what was if you got COVID, what was the likelihood that you were going to die of COVID? Yeah, it was like... 0.03 or something, right? Right. And that shut down the world. Or 0.3, whatever it was. Yeah, that shut down the world. Yeah. And we're talking about, um, you know, a situation where you've got a 14% chance of dealing with someone that a previous client took to court and they lost. You know, the, the advisor lost. Yeah. Um, you, you've got a 10% chance of dealing with someone who is a convicted felon. Um the um, you can't make it up. Well, even the last one, I think this is huge. Over half of the dual register in the uh, advisors in the last ten years had at least one disciplinary action, with an average fine of sixty million dollars over that ten-year period. The average number of disciplinary actions was one per year. One per year. One per year. <laughs> I mean, anyway, obviously we're beating the dead horse a little bit there, but it's a it's a shocking set of t- statistics. Um, no, it absolutely is. Um, it, it is shocking, and the um, and again, it, it goes. Um, our industry, and as has always in my mind been a problem in our industry, is that um, it is uh, it's not a, a concrete industry. You know, we deal with something that is um, you know beyond what most people. Think about they just don't have the training I mean how many times do we hear our clients they tell us that well you know we just trust you guys we don't you know um, uh, people really don't know much about how uh, to invest um, and this includes I'm talking about all people um, this, and, and on the top of that list would be doctors and lawyers and extremely the people who are extremely well educated very well in other, educated other fields yeah. You know, one of the things they talked about Bernie Madoff's victims, which shocked all these people, and the reason that his scam was so big, is that his um, clientele was deemed to be so sophisticated. They were rich. There is an enormous difference between being sophisticated and being rich. Um, the, uh, you know, and the fact is. Um, oftentimes, it is those people that are uh, the most educated, who have the highest incomes, that are the most susceptible to these kinds of frauds because 
um, that's this is the way they're sold. They're sold to their ego. They're sold to you know the idea that oh well you know we have this sophisticated formula that is very hard to understand, but um, but it's going to make you a lot of money, and um, and they're attracted to that. Well, and you are one of the special ones that will get access to. It. And right, you, exactly. You are, you are very special. Um, and this also gets into um, you know the name calling uh, or, or name dropping, I should say. You know, I mean, how many times do um, and we get these things uh, where um, uh, you know just the other day um, I got a solicitation from a firm that provides services to firms like ours, and and all it was was a list of these are the people that I've worked with. I'd like to talk to you. I have no idea what the guy does. <laughs> he didn't even mention yeah. like what what, what, what what do you actually do? What are you trying it, to sell it was me? Just, on? It's just all hey, look at our clients. This, look how sophisticated they are. Wouldn't you like to be part of that group? Shocking and, how much that probably works. And it works. And that's how these Ponzi schemes work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they you know they they get people in, and that's why there's often um, a um, you know it's like a group like at this gentleman's church. You know, it was a small group. He, you know, he probably identified who was kind of the most well-respected person in that small group, and he was probably the first person he targeted to get into the Ponzi scheme. And then everyone said, "Oh, well, they're doing it. You know, we should do it because we, you know, you know how much we respect him." Um, and that's that's how these things that's how these things happen. Yeah, so. I mean. So the bottom line is um, the you know, the way we are structured is very purposeful and it is um, and it is important. You should never allow um, your advisor to have custody of your assets. And so we often talk about trust is uh, one of our uh, core values. It is the most important asset that we have is our clients' trust. And ultimately, real trust is built over time and relationship. But, uh, but as Ronald Reagan f- famously said, you should trust but verify. And um, you know, the, uh, you, you know, when you have a relationship with an investment advisor, your assets should be custodied at a different place. You know, so for us, uh, we are agnostic, so we have assets custodied all over the place, but the majority of our assets are either at TD Ameritrade or Charles Schwab. Of course, they're merging to that's going to be Charles Schwab. Fidelity, pretty good. Uh, Fidelity, uh, we have. Um, well-known, well-respected right. companies. Right, and that is where our clients' assets actually are. Okay. Um, we simply access them to make the investment decisions, um, to deduct our fee, and that's it. That's all. And that, um, and that's the way uh, your relationship with your advisor needs to be structured. And you need to remember that one cannot serve two masters. If um, you can't have the client's best interest at heart, if when you're working for the store that's selling the investment products, mm-hmm. I mean it's just it's just that simple. Yep. Um, so I think that's it. I think that's it. All right. Um, yeah, you know, um, like and follow us. Um, you know, you can see the the video of this on YouTube or on all of your. Um, podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, um, you know, all of it. So, you know, we'll talk to you soon. And if you have any other suggestions of um, topics you'd like to hear about, 
Yeah, yeah, let us know. Please We're always looking know. for new topics. Yeah. So, all right, thanks a bunch. Capital Advisors is an independent registered investment advisory firm headquartered in Atlanta with clients nationwide. Learn more about us at ironcapitaladvisors.com. The Iron Capital Podcast is produced by Iron Capital Advisors. Our awesome original theme music was written and performed by Michael Smith and Leah Calvert. This content is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or advice. Clients and employees of Iron Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Please like and subscribe to the Iron Capital Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another episode soon.